Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Vain, you probably think this podcast is about you. I want to thank Carly Simon for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Carly Simon was hot, man. Wow. Before I get rolling, I want to thank Richard Nathan for donating to Stick to Wrestling. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, go to PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives at gmail.com. No amount is too small, and certainly no amount is too large. Uh, reminder, we this is show number 196. Episode 200 is coming up, and you want to join our Facebook group in time for that. Just go to Facebook, search Stick to Wrestling. It'll come right up, and you will be approved. The show is going to be nothing but questions from the listeners about you know wrestling in general. We took some questions today about today's topic which is it's WrestleMania month still. And we're going to talk about WrestleMania 13, which is 25 years ago this month. And I want to bring on a new guest, but someone who's been part of Arcadian Vanguard and good friend of mine on Facebook. First time I get to talk to him today, Jake Hammer. Jake, you sound like a, a detective from like a 1970s TV series. That's right, dude. Or an 80s porn star. There you go. That's even better. I, I like it that some people think dirtier than I do. <laughs> Jake the Valentine yeah, Hammer. Yes, I like it. Yes, it's uh, great to be a uh, longtime listener and first-time caller. <laughs> Outstanding. First-time guest. I'm glad you're here. This is, this is going to be good. 25 years ago, it, it went by so fast, but we had WrestleMania 13, which I thought was a pivotal WrestleMania Let's talk about that, Jake. Last week, we talked about WrestleMania 8, and which was the end of the Hulk Hogan era. Hogan, they tried to bring him back about a year later. It failed miserably. I would not have guessed that it would have failed at all, but they brought Hogan back. I didn't think it was going to be 1984 again, but I thought things would, would step up, and it was over. The fans kind of rejected Hogan. Yeah, dude. Well, the problem was that Hogan was off the juice and he was looking really slim. Plus, WWF had had a lot of scandals, uh, the ring yep. scandal, steroid scandal, like nobody was really into wrestling and wrestling cyclical by nature. So sometimes like wrestling is like really hot and then it's not. I mean, if you look at the attitude era from like 98 to 2001 and then afterwards, it kind of dropped off. Just sometimes people are into wrestling and sometimes they're not. And I think fans got, I love Hulk Hogan personally. Like if it wasn't for him, I would have never probably been a wrestling fan. But at the time, the fans were just kind of sick of him. They wanted someone new. They put Bret Hart in there. He did all right. I love Bret Hart, but they didn't have a Hulk Hogan type character to get him through the mid nineties. It was just kind of like, oh, they keep going back to Hulk Hogan. They had Yoko Zuna there for a while. Just nothing really panned out, you know? No, definitely not. I mean, they they tried Bret Hart. They tried Randy Savage to an extent. They tried really hard with Diesel and Lex Luger. And then they kept going back to Bret Hart. And here we are, I mean, coming in to WrestleMania 13, Steve Austin, by almost by accident. No, you know what? I'll go right with it. Totally by accident. 
becomes their number one guy. I mean, they saw something in him in 1996. They gave him the main event for Survivor Series, but that's back, you know, let's be honest, starting WrestleMania 8, the WWF went into a, a deep five-year slump. I mean, it, they had their moments, but overall, it was a bad product. The bat, the It was not just a stale product. It was a moldy product. Basically, with Owen Hart and Bret Hart, that was probably the best thing they did during that five-year period. Like, Owen Hart really caught fire as a heel. I was always a big Owen Hart fan, and he was good as a babyface, I guess. He was kind of, I don't want to call him a jobber, but he was just kind of toiling towards the lower cards. And that Bret-Owen feud was just magic. And then they put the belt on Diesel. They tried to have him feud with numerous guys like Shawn Michaels and Sid. And I like Kevin Nash but he wasn't the answer either. So they kept going back to Brett. Vince McMahon during this time, my God, dude, he was going on TV and just playing Mr. Mr. Victim. Like, it was like somber Vince. Like, he would claim that Ted Turner was out to destroy the WWF and billionaire Ted stole all of his talent, stole Razor Ramon, stole Diesel, stole Hulk Hogan. When in the reality is, like, Vince had a chance to keep those guys, and he kind of let them go. So it's kind of Vince's fault, you know, for doing that. And one thing I want to talk about is, like, Vince always was, like, obsessed with beating Ted Turner and blaming Ted Turner for his problems. But I don't think Ted Turner really gave Vince McMahon, like, another thought. Like, I think that Ted appreciated wrestling, but I don't think he was a fan. I think he was more of like a he was appreciative of what it did for his superstation. And he would check in with Bill Shaw and uh, Scott Sasso once in a while and go, hey, guys, how's wrestling going? And then they'd go, well, Vince McMahon says you're a devil. And then he'd just go, oh, that Vince, he's a he's a rascal. And then he'd go back to his daily thing. I think <laughs> a little more obsessed with it than ted turner was i think ted turner could, could he knew who rick flair and lex luger and sting were but other than that he probably didn't know who bobby eaton was no 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 question he didn't and yeah and you know everyone uh vince mcmahon is the ultimate guy who believes in capitalism and competition and all that good stuff until the shoe is on the other foot i mean i the story i heard kevin nash you know sits down with vince and says uh I just got a $750,000 offer to jump to WCW. And Vince just said, you know, I'm not matching that. Good luck. And, you know, he was happy for Kevin Nash. And, you know, Kevin Nash was happy for himself. But, I mean, the, the contracts WCW gave those guys in 1996 absolutely shattered the, the salary scale of wrestling. The top guys were making like $250,000 a year. And, I mean, Eric Bischoff just looked at it in a different way, in a, in a smart way, I'm going to say, because he's like, look, uh, Kevin Nash, it's going to be worth $15,000 a week to have him on my TV show. And at the end of the day, he was right. Dude, Vince McMahon did not see it coming. Like, he was still stuck in the mentality of you get paid on how much the house is. And he didn't understand guarantee contracts at that time. And that was the wave of the future. Vince himself allowed wcw in the words of the iron sheik to suplex break his back and make him humble coming into this wrestlemania wcw was now the number one wrestling company in america hulk hogan was there and he was their top heel those were three unthinkable things in 1992 all of them wcw number one hogan is there and he's a bad guy like the world has been turned upside down 
I just think that uh, it was like a mixture of things, man. Vince didn't want to pay Scott Hall and Kevin Nash what they were worth. And then Hulk Hogan got a little stale in WCW. They caught a little fire with the NWO, and he wanted to get on that. That was the only way to keep Hulk Hogan relevant. And quite frankly, to keep him in WCW was to turn him heel because the fans were not having Hogan as the babyface anymore. I mean, dude, he had Jimmy Hart as his manager for the longest time. Like, Jimmy Hart is one of my favorite personalities of all time, and he was a great heel manager. But, dude, as a babyface with Hogan, like, the fans crapped all over that. They did. The fans, especially the fans in the South, just saw Hogan as a WWF guy that was now in their promotion, and they just didn't want him. But Bischoff was looking at a bigger picture, and I give him credit, that obsessed fan that you know needs that front row ticket every time and is going to tear up Hogan merchandise on camera. That That's not the fan that, that Bischoff was going after. And really, it's not the typical wrestling fan. Bischoff was very smart at that time. And I think he had a lot of piss and vinegar in him. And he had seen what Vince had done to uh, Vern Gagne, who was a close friend of Eric's in the AWA. Like, Vince kicked Vern's teeth in. Like, the AWA went away because Vince basically just raided that territory. And Bischoff probably took food off Bischoff's table. And so he had a foresight to kind of change things up. But also, he wanted to cripple Vince McMahon financially. And, I mean, can you blame him? I mean, the dude probably wasn't getting paid most weeks in the AWA. And he, he had to feed his family and stuff. And that's a big deal. It is. And there was, I mean, Eric Bischoff was very vocal about, yeah, I'm going after Vince. I'm going to put him out of business. He he was not shy about saying it. And when Vince McMahon uh, was complaining about, you know, what he considered Ted Turner's predatory practices, which if, I mean, come on, Vince, <laughs> if that's not hypocrisy, I don't know what is. I remember Eric Bischoff saying, well, I'll tell you what, Ted Turner, if Vince wants to Complain about Ted Turner. Uh, Ted's on the golf course right now with President Clinton. So let's see how that goes. Dude, Vince, like at the time, I wasn't a smart wrestling fan. I barely knew who Dave Meltzer was. So I didn't know how Vince was in the 1980s when he put all these territories out of business. But I felt sorry for Vince as a naive wrestling fan. I was like, oh, poor Vince, not knowing the story that he'd done some pretty ruthless business practices to some of the other territories but at the time vince was all somber on tv he always like high five the fans when he came out he looked all humble like vince was playing that woes me to uh the highest hilt uh, if if you remember correctly but the problem was his his promotion was just stale man like some of the talent they had there dude was just i, I i'm not gonna bash any talent because they're hard workers, and if you're in the WWF or WCW or even ECW, you were good. But it was people that fans didn't want to see. Like, I like Billy Gunn, and the smoking guns are all right, but no one wanted to see the smoking guns. Nobody wanted to see the Godwins. Did you want to see the Godwins? I did not want to see the Godwins. I actually thought that the smoking guns were pretty good. But again, it, and we'll, we'll talk more about this on the show. In the mid-90s, when the WWF was going downhill, I mean, everyone had to have an over-the-top gimmick, and these guys had to be cowboys. And it's like, well, you don't have to do that, you know? But that's, and, and like I said, we're going to talk more about this as the show goes on, because you, I am, DM'd me something today 
I mean, there's no need for everyone to be an over-the-top gimmick, but Vince had to do it. One thing I noticed coming into the show is that the WWF had really started to change probably right around fall of 1996. They, they started to get a little bit edgy. They started to get a little bit more, I don't know, aimed towards the internet fan. They, you know, the, not everything is a secret anymore. And they're now blurring the good guy versus bad guy line. You've got The Undertaker, who's a good guy. Sid, who I think is kind of a good guy. Brett is turning. Steve Austin is, at least in theory, a bad guy. But all four of them have no problem fighting amongst each other. Yeah, it was actually kind of weird because growing up as a fan in the 80s and the early 90s, it was always good versus evil. Hulk Hogan against the evil Russian or the big giant or something like that. And it was pretty clear. Like, I ne- you never saw other than very special instances like baby faces against baby faces or heels against heels. But during this time, like WWF was trying to mix it up. They were trying to do something different and it provided like the undercard wasn't very good in the WWF, but their main events were usually pretty solid. Like Shawn Michaels, you know, would take on mankind. Those were pretty good matches. Bret Hart against Austin you know, Shawn Michaels against Vader, even though Shawn Michaels didn't want to work with Vader, that was a pretty good match. I mean, they had to do something because WCW was eating their lunch. And you know what? It worked. Like, their main events were pretty good. I got the WWF pay-per-views just basically for the main events alone. Like, I and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I never, ever wanted Shawn Michaels to be WWF champion. Like, I was never the biggest Shawn Michaels fan ever. When Sid beat him for the title, I just was so, I was like, yes. And then he started doing the, I lost my smile and all that crap. It's like, I just kind of wish sometimes Shawn Michaels would go away. I knew a lot of people who, and not, you know, smart fans, internet fans, whatever, who just hated Shawn Michaels. Like, I I mean, turn the channel heat with Shawn Michaels. They just did not get into that character. He had go away heat with me. He was a great wrestler, and I don't mean that he was terrible, but, like, dude, he did not make me want to watch WWF television. And plus, I was a Bret Hart loyalist, and ah. I, I, so I'm always in Bret's camp, and I just, I, I don't know. Dude. I, now that I'm older, and I can understand stuff, like, Shawn Michaels was one of the greatest of all time, and he was the Ric Flair of his generation, and I appreciate him more. And plus, dude, my mom was in love with Shawn Michaels. Like, she thought, he's hot. And I don't want to know who my mom thought was hot. <laughs> That's great. John Bon Jovi and Shawn Michaels. She'd always, like, gee whiz, keep that to yourself, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's actually really funny. And you're right, Brett was in the main events. Either Brett or Shawn or both were usually in the main event. And that almost guarantees a good match. I feel like. I think Brett is better than Sean, but only by a little bit. Like, I, th- I think Sean is getting to the point where people knock him to the point where he's a little bit underrated. He always had good matches. Dude, Sean Michaels is fantastic. And I was a big fan of his work in the AWA with the Midnight Rockers and then with the Rockers. But it, when he turned heel with Sherry Martell and stuff, I just, I lost. Like, I, I lost interest in Sean Michaels. Uh, that gimmick was not for me. Bret Hart, I've been a big fan of his since the Hart Foundation days. He seemed like a humble guy. I've actually met Bret Hart in person, and he was so nice. Like, he's one of the nicest wrestlers I've ever met. 
And to be honest with you, like I wanted Bret Hart to succeed. Like I wanted him to be the WWF champion. Did it do well for business? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but I would rather root for a guy like Bret Hart. Who's humble. And you can tell is a real good guy. And then you find out Shawn Michaels is a treacherous bastard. And it was kind of like that in real life. Like Brett had his own idiosyncrasies, but Sean, and he's apologized for it. I give him credit, but I mean, Sean had a reputation as being someone who went out of his way to make everyone around him miserable when he became a big star. Dude, he was the Buddy Rogers of his time. Like he was the ultimate, I don't know if I can cuss on this, he was the ultimate craft disturber. Like he was toxic. If this was like a workplace, he would be fired for his toxic behavior, but somehow Vince McMahon put up with it. And maybe he was afraid he's going to go to WCW and all that stuff. But I also think if he went to WCW, they wouldn't know how to use him. Like he would be the U S champion or something. I don't think he would be in the main events until like maybe 1999 or 2000. But I don't think it would have been that big of a loss if Shawn Michaels would have went to WCW. Eric Bischoff would do interviews like on AOL. This is how far back we're going now. And he made it clear over and over again that he would not hire Shawn Michaels under any circumstances. And Michaels was funny. I mean, you know, the, the click was a real thing uh, with him, Triple H, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall until Hall and Nash left. And I mean, Shawn would do his shit and someone would, you know, confront him and he'd immediately hide behind Nash or Hall. You know, neither of which were, I mean, a Bret Hart level shooter, but Kevin Nash, you know, they were both big, tough guys. Dude, Shawn Michaels. I I don't know, dude, we could do a whole episode why I don't like Shawn Michaels. I mean, I do now, but man, back in the day, I was like, oh, my God, like this guy, like, like, I appreciate him, like I said now, but man, back in the day, I was just like. Is there someone else that could carry the torch for the WWF? I mean, gee whiz, the Undertaker got the title in 97. Could he have carried the title for a while? I mean, he was a company man. Shawn Michaels wasn't a company man, dude. Like, he was all about Shawn Michaels. No, totally. And he needed to be a heel. When they had him out here out there as a baby face, I mean, it, it was worth trying. The better a heel you are, usually the better a baby face, but not in Sean's case. He was he just, you know, he, he he turned off the guys. What can I say? Dude, he was a real life heel. He he was like a Ken Patera. You ever seen those Ken Patera shoot interviews? And a Ken Patera is hilarious as hell, but he's a heel in real life. Shawn Michaels is like, I don't know, man. Like, I don't hate him at all, but it's just that time they could have done something better. You know what I mean? I do. I think he he legitimately turned too many people off. I mean... I had a neighbor who was a casual wrestling fan who was just like, you know, if, if Shawn Michaels comes on, I, I turn the channel. That's it. I go watch WCW. And I remember him saying he didn't even like WCW. Anyway, let's get let's move on to WrestleMania 13, even though I'm enjoying this conversation. We open up with a four-way tag team match. These things didn't even exist like two or three years ago. Uh, ECW made them popular. And this kind of felt like a let's get everyone on the WrestleMania match. It was the headbangers winning the, the match over Doug Furness and Phil LaFon, the Godwins, and the New Blackjacks. Let me start saying I thought the New Blackjacks was an absolutely awful idea. And I don't know who they were trying to appeal to, 
I mean, people who have been watching since the Blackjacks were in the WWF in 1975. What's up? Dude, the new Blackjacks, it looked like Barry Windham and JBL were cosplaying as Blackjacks. That's, yeah. that's, that's how it came across. And Barry Windham, dude, is one of the greatest performers in the history of professional wrestling. I'll go to my grave saying for like a five-year period or so, Barry Windham was as good as anybody else. He was supposed to take that mantle from Ric Flair, dude. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was just he lost his desire for the, the business. I don't know if when he didn't get the title in 1991, he just didn't care anymore. But he came back to the WWF in 96, and I was happy to see Barry. Like, I was happy to see him in the WWF because I like Barry Windham. But it's almost like he just stopped trying. Now, Bradshaw, for example, I thought there was some potential with him. Like, he was kind of a modern-day Stan Hansen. If he was in the 1970s, he would have been a top contender for Bruno's WWF championship. But the time is just like things were changing. Like fans wanted more of a luchador fast paced style, I think. And Bradshaw was kind of like he was awesome to watch. I appreciated him. I know the Internet doesn't really like Bradshaw that much, but I appreciated his talent, you know. But then again, I, I like old school wrestling. He's kind of a throwback. The Godwins, my God, dude, like. No offense to these guys, but that hillbilly, scuffling hillbilly gimmick should have died with Haystacks Calhoun, pretty much, dude. And hillbilly Jim seems like a, a beautiful human being. You know, I on Legends House, he was amazing. Like, you can tell he's a very good person, but why is hillbilly Jim back in the WWF? It's almost like it gives people that would tease me as a kid ammunition to basically, like, Colin Coward calls wrestling fans booger eaters. Like, it gave them all the ammunition they needed to, like, tease me even further with that Godwin's gimmick. It just ranks up there with, like, George the Animal Steel and Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant is just, like, embarrassing gimmicks, pretty much. Phil LaFon and uh, Doug Furness, like, I was very excited. They came in, and they just did not connect with the fan. Like, I don't know if like Vince didn't like him. I don't know if Doug Furness could talk on a mic. Uh, you know, I had not seen his Smoky Mountain work or his like uh, Knoxville work beforehand. I'd seen him in Japan. He's pretty good. Phil LaFon, a.k.a. Dan Crawford. He was amazing. But it's like they just didn't like connect with that WWF audience. And it was kind of a flop. Now, I saw Philip LaFon and, uh, and Doug Furness in action in Fresno once against the new Diesel and the new Razor. And they were oh, actually, no. <laughs> yeah, Rick Wagner and uh, Glenn Jacobs. It was an all right match, but it was mainly because of uh, Doug Furness and Philip LaFon. I was really hoping they would feud with Bulldog and Owen a little more. They had some matches with them, but they just never like took off. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. And as a matter of fact, uh, didn't they? They made an angle out of it, right? Where they would get on TV and complain about, you know, the fans don't cheer for us and. Every week, the uh, our opponents have the uh, have the home field advantage. That's so stupid. Like they and they also turned him against America. Well, Philip Lafon's Canadian, but like around Survivor Series, they turned Doug Furness anti-American. He kind of sided a little bit with the Hart Foundation, but that never really went anywhere. I thought these guys were really good. Like they were excellent, but they just they didn't connect. Like a WWF fan likes work work rate to a certain degree but they also like character and personality and promos and they just didn't have it they just didn't work and then the headbangers were fun i mean are they the greatest tag team of all the time no but they were fun they catered to the kids and 
you know, they had that metalhead look going. So they were fine. Like I, I, I would have marketed them in the attitude era. They kind of, they got the belts a couple times, I think. I think that they did. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the WWF. It's big on physiques. It's big on charisma, personality and furnace and Lafon were an excellent team, but you know, they just weren't in the right place for that, that alone. And I thought this match was weak and I thought it went way too long. Dude, it was one of the worst matches on the card, if not the worst match. It was a cluster. Like, if you're going to, like, have all those tag teams in one sitting, why just have a three-minute tag team battle royal or something? Like, it wouldn't have been that great, but it would have been more exciting. Like, the Blackjacks and Lafon and Furnace, who were probably, if you think about it, they were the two best teams in the, in the even though the Blackjacks game, it was kind of lame. Like they were the best teams in the whole group and they got like disqualified or counted out or something in the first part of the match. And then you got the Godwins who no one wanted to see as tag team champions ever. They lost to the headbangers. So, you know, it, it was it was what it was. I kind of not. No, I'm not going to say I kind of like. I like the Godwins better when they were like that bad guy deliverance tag team. Like I could live with that. But you're right. As, as comedy baby faces that it was bad. Dude, they had Shawn Michaels go home heat. Yeah. Go wait. <laughs> Next match, Rocky Maivia versus the Sultan. Uh, a loud Rocky sucks chant goes up before the match. And to me, and I really probably to everyone who was chanting Rocky sucks, it felt like he was a getting a big push and he was the intercontinental champion long before he earned it, long before he deserved it. And felt like everyone just saw right through it and resented it. You know, he was like, if I look at it right now, he had a lot of potential at that time. Unfortunately for him, he got straddled with that gimmick. And that gimmick, yeah. that gimmick was death. Like, if they would have like pushed him like in the first or second match for like a year or something, I think the fans would have gotten like behind him. But dude, like he wasn't ready for that. Like. He, his his ability was really good. You know, like I, I saw him do some good stuff in this match. He was doing drop kicks and all that other stuff. But that lame gimmick, dude, like at least he got rid of that hair that he had in 1996. You know, that meme that goes out that Kevin Hart puts out where he's got that like bouffant hairdo or something. At least he got rid of that. But dude, and he's fighting the Sultan. Like whose idea was it to come up with that gimmick? Like was Vince McMahon like, watching the disney channel with his grandkids one day and saw aladdin and he was like <laughs> this is what we need a sultan <laughs> jr he calls up jr jr yeah who who's who's on the roster who's who's on the uh who's on the bench that needs an opportunity well uh fault two is looking for work perfect we'll make him the sultan uh, I mean, yeah, and here's the thing, like, it's it's a good thing, like, in about a year, maybe not even, they would totally get away from stuff like that. But Vince was still convinced that everyone had to be this giant gimmick, uh, T.L. Hopper, for example, or the goon or the sultan. And it's like, you're driving people away with this stuff. It, it's another Jimmy Valiant, George Steele, Godwin's gimmick, dude. Like, it was not good. It was very cartoony. I just thought of Aladdin every time I saw him. And That's got to be where he, where he came up with it. Fatu was a great talent. Like, I love the Samoan SWAT team, and I love the head shrinkers. And it's no offense to Fatu at all. 
It's just that gimmick was just, ugh, it was gross. The Samoan SWAT team. I remember I used to get world-class tapes in 1988, world-class championship wrestling, and I'd get them to watch the Michael Hayes do interviews in the Samoan SWAT team. They were an awesome tag team. I mean, a little bit more about Rocky. You would think the WWF would learn that when they tried to make Lex Luger a, and Lex had all of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he had the ability to be like uh, the look and the ability to be the world's heavyweight champion. They tried to make him the next Hulk Hogan and they made him a candy ass baby face in a world where Nirvana was the number one group and it all failed to no one's surprise. And now they're doing the same thing with Rocky Maivia. And, you know, he trained in Memphis and when he was there, I mean, everyone was talking about this guy is going to be a superstar. You're not going to be a superstar without the right push. And this was the wrong push. It was gnarly. When he turned heel, like I didn't know he was going to at first. I didn't know if he was going to be a big star. But when he turned heel and started doing promos and started doing funny stuff with the Nation of Domination, I was like, this kid's got it. Like he's got to be a heel. So I went to the Raw in 98 when Austin and uh, Tyson first met up. And I think Rock fought Tom Brandy on that show. And I was so excited to see the Rock because I loved his interviews. He started doing some really funny stuff. And I was I was probably the only one in our section that was cheering him. I was like, man, this guy is awesome. He's going to be I didn't know he was going to be like in Jumanji and Jungle Cruise and all that stuff. And fast and furious but i thought he was going to be a pretty big draw and man he he uh proved all those rocky sucks chanters wrong man he did a great job they had rocky johnson come out like to make the save after iron Sheik and bob backland uh, attacked rocky and i don't know if you noticed this but okay rocky was a big star in my home state of california for a long time he's a big star in the wwf and i think he was a big star in memphis and florida but those Chicago fans had no idea who Rocky Johnson was. No, he, I mean, and in my notes, I'm like, once again, who are they trying to appeal to fans from 15 years ago? It's like Rocky had been gone from the WWF since early 1985. And now you have a completely different fan base. Never mind, you know, Bob Backley and Iron Sheik. It's, you know, I didn't understand what they were trying to do. But anyway, I do agree that Rocky sucks, but The Rock was awesome. And I remember when he started referring to himself as The Rock in interviews. I thought it was the greatest thing. And I I, I think I said this was the last time, like two years ago. I remember when he was on Saturday Night Live and watching that. I'm like, oh, my God, he is going to be too big for the wrestling business very soon. And I had never said that about anyone ever before i never really thought roddy piper's film career was going to take off i always kind of knew that hulk hogan you know wrestling was going to be his thing maybe he'll do a movie every now and then but you know he's not going to become a big hollywood star but i was like wow this guy he's too good to just be a pro wrestler and it turned out i was right for once i will go to my grave saying that the greatest wrestling personalities that could do everything in history are the rock Bobby the Brain Heenan, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan. Like, you can't beat that. Like, Heenan and Rock are neck and neck. Like, the, Heenan could have been, like, a mainstream, like, Tonight Show host. 
and it just never happened. But Rock is the dude's untouchable, dude. He's the Michael Jordan of professional wrestling. He really is. I mean, he and you know what? I mean, he did what he needed to do and he got over and, you know, the next WrestleMania, he's in the main event. So it, it speaks volumes. But anyway, we move on to a Ken Shamrock interview, which I thought I thought they did a really good job with this. They established who he was and then he gets to throw Billy Gunn around coming in when they signed Ken Shamrock. And I remember like that being on ESPN. I thought he was going to be the number one. He, I thought he was going to turn to the face of the WWF, and obviously that just didn't happen. I think if he had arrived maybe a year before, it would have. But things are changing and going in a different direction in the WWF, and it's not going to be like they're not trying to be a scripted UFC like I thought they would. Like they're just going on their own path. Ken Shamrock, I agree with you 100%. I could have seen this guy as wwf champion like the dude had the ability he had the intensity was his interviews that great eh. you know he, he cut a sports-like promo though like the fans i really thought got into ken shamrock like he had a nice like he was in the wwf for what like three or four years like he had a nice run there like he was he the intercontinental champ i thought he was going to be the face of the wwf quite frankly and um a couple of pay-per-views later, or maybe the, the next pay-per-view, he had a really good match against Vader, and I was, I was like, okay, this is the direction that pro wrestling is going in. You know, like, looking a little bit more stiff and realistic, and I was totally wrong. We were going in the direction of the people's elbow. Yeah, and, it, you know, Ken Shamrock had a nice run. Like, he was he was pretty solid. Like, I was a fan of Shamrocks. Like, I, I think if he would have stuck around there longer, he would have been a Hall of Famer. But it just, I don't know why he left the WWF. Maybe you do. But, like, he had a lot of good stuff. Like, and I think kind of, like, his shoot-type angle character kind of went to Kurt Angle. Like, Kurt Angle kind of, obviously, Kurt Angle did a way bigger job. But it he kind of got replaced by Kurt Angle in that role. Here's what happened with Kurt Angle. Now, not Kurt Angle, excuse me, Ken Shamrock. Um, they wanted to do an angle with him in 98 or 99. This is when the WWF was just, uh, you know, the television was getting cruder and cruder by the moment. They wanted to do an angle where he was sleeping with his sister, Ryan Shamrock. And Ken's like, no, I can't do that. I have our chain of dojos in Southern California. You can't have me doing that on TV. And expect people to bring their children into my dojo and suddenly creative ran out of ideas for ken shamrock oh my god that is terrible like <laughs> you know that's some of the rumor stuff, some that of the stuff confirmed some of the stuff they did during the attitude era would never air on television period like they would wwf would be a victim of cancel culture at this point if they even tried some of the stuff they did during dude and they even like did that lame gimmick where they had hawk like portraying a, like his drug addict and his demons and he fell off the titan trot who who was the one that came up with that crap i i i have an idea and it what makes it worse jake what makes it worse is that Hawk was having, uh, from what I understand, some real-life substance abuse issues, and then they turn it into an angle. Like, what, the, what are you doing? Why not kick the guy while he's down, you know? Like, yeah. gee, wit, dude. like, it's like, why don't you get the guy help? Like, 
I've met Hawk before. He's actually, he was one of the nicest wrestlers I've ever met. Like he was so kind and I would, and you hear wrestlers talk about him in the same vein. You think you'd want to help this guy, but I think that Vince holds grudges and Hawk got, you know, in trouble in 92 and left the promotion. And I think Vince is a very vindictive human being and he had to teach Hawk a lesson. I I think this actually came from underneath Vince McMahon. But I, at the end of the day, everything gets filtered through Vince McMahon. So while it may not have been his idea, he signed off on it, which, you know, again, I, that's something to me you just don't do. But anyway, um, next up, we have Hunter Hearst Helmsley against Goldust. He is not Triple H yet. Goldust, they are trying to change his character into something that when they first brought him in it was like okay this guy uh they're portraying him as a homosexual there's no other way to put it and now they're kind of trying to turn that exclamation point into a question mark because they've got him running around with his real life wife marlena yeah so i'm a big fan of dustin Rhodes. like i know like You've heard Tom Zink on shoot interviews in the past and other people say, well, Dustin only got a push because he was Dusty Rhodes' son. No, dude, Dustin Rhodes was the real deal. Like he could have been WCW champion at some point, not early in his career, but maybe down the road. When he came in as Goldust, I was excited to see him in the WWF, but I didn't really like what they were doing with him with the Razor Ramon thing and stuff like that. I didn't really think that was appropriate for television, but you know, they turned to babyface in early 97. And I don't know, dude, like I wanted to cheer Goldust, but I just thought the gimmick had run its course. What did you think? I was never a big fan of the gimmick. To me, it always felt like kind of a swipe at Dusty Rhodes, you know, gold dust. I, I, I was I like like you're saying, I liked Dustin Rhodes, especially as time went on. I did not like him in 1991. When Dusty was, he was cramming uh, Dustin down our throats. But overall, as a performer, like once I got past that, like I am a fan of his. Dude, he was a great United States champion. He was a good intercontinental champion. He was one of the best guys, like with Ted DiBiase and Arn Anderson and Piper, to never hold the world title. And it seemed like after he got rid of his demons, like he got better with age, especially some of AEW, like good for him i hope you know he continues to like wrestle in you know to his 50s and 60s man like he's an inspiration one thing i i've always given dustin Rhodes credit for he came to the nwa right at the end of dusty's run as booker and they put him and he's out there you know this 19 year old kid with a crazy mohawk teaming with barry windham so right there you've got dusty's feuding with windham but dustin is teaming with uh with uh, Barry's brother Kendall, and that didn't last long. He, you know, when Dusty left, so did uh, Dustin. And I give Dustin credit; he went to world class championship wrestling, and he paid his dues. I mean, working world class in 1989, 1990 that was that was not easy, and he he went out and did it. Dude, he's amazing. Like he kind of had the Rocky Maivia thing for a while, where people didn't want to get behind him because. They were pushing down his throat like Eric Watts, but he overcame, man, and he became one of the one of the great ones. I mean, I got to give him his due, and he's fantastic. Uh, Triple H at this time, though, 
Like, I was kind of mixed about him. I thought he had a really good look, and I thought he had some charisma. But as a character, as just Hunter Hearst Helmsley, I kind of thought he was kind of bland. Like, I thought that, like, I wasn't really excited to see him wrestle. I was like, oh, really? This is going to be another boring match. But he proved me wrong. Like, after a while, he became a really, really effective heel. And, you know, he did what he did. And I have more, it's like Shawn Michaels. I have more appreciation now for Triple H than I did in 97, 98, 99. Like, but at the time, I was just like, God, this guy's boring. I mean, Vince, supposedly Vince fell in love with the guy. He was in uh, WCW as Terra Rising or whatever it was. And Vince was interested in him. And in, in order to get him to jump, uh, Vince promised him a push. And he got the push. And it felt like he got the push before he was ready for it. But he caught up to it and eventually passed it over time. I mean, by... 99 2000 he was really good okay so triple h like at first i thought oh you know i'm I'm not really excited to see this guy like he's just another guy on the roster like really yeah he had a good look he had a good body he had charisma as the snobby you know aristocrat and i think china added a lot to it too like after a while when people say that like when Triple H only got the push he did because he was Stephanie McMahon's lover and all that stuff. I don't agree with it. Like he deserved his push. Like he was a heel that I wanted to see get his butt kicked. He wasn't like a go away Shawn Michaels type. Like I wanted to pay money to see the guy get his butt kicked. Would you agree with that? I definitely agree with it. And evidenced by the fact that he was getting a big push long before he got involved with Stephanie. Um, Speaking of China, I mean, at this point, WrestleMania 13, they are a real-life couple. And, I mean, China, I mean, it, it's kind of sad. It's very sad what happened to her at the end. But she's brand spanking new now, and she is an absolute monster. She's not like something wrestling has ever seen before. She's this, you know, rather unattractive but very large and muscular woman. And it was like, you know, wow, check her out. And during this match, she absolutely ragdolls Marlena. Dude, that was one of the craziest parts of the match. The end of the match was spectacular. Like, the match was okay. Like, it wasn't anything to write home about. But towards the end, when she was ragdolling Marlena and Goldust was out there and then Triple H beats him, that was a pretty good finish. Like... I was like, whoa, she's really like manhandling Marlena. Yeah, she was. I mean, she was a giant compared to Marlena. Marlena, she's a small-ish woman, but she's not tiny. And China towered over her. Dude, China had all the makings of a superstar. Was I in favor of her winning the Intercontinental title over Jeff Jarrett? No. Uh, That's another conversation for another day, but like she was uh, definitely had star written all over her when she came in. I was like, whoa, who is this? Yeah, I mean, I, I know they wanted to not build the divas uh, or women's division around her, but they, they wanted to do more with her, like towards the end of her run in the WWF. They wanted to give her the neck injury thing so she would have an Achilles heel and she just didn't go along with it. And. I mean, you can't blame her for not having the best attitude. It's like, okay, the boss's daughter just stole my boyfriend, and we've all got to work together now. Dude, dude, I don't blame her 100%. Like, I would quit. 
Like I would be like, screw this. I'm out of here. Like, how can you even like, and no offense to Stephanie and triple H. I mean, they fell in love and stuff and good for them. But if it was me, I'd be like, I, I can't work in this culture. I would have an anxiety attack every time I went to work. Yeah. And I don't know if China did this, but like, you know, I, I, if I were in her place, I would have gone to Vince McMahon and said, look, Vince, you got to give me my release. Yes. You got to let me go to WCW. I know they're your competition, but you can't ask me to be here. And like I said, it's, you know, just a, a really bad break for her. I mean, like I said, it's a boss's daughter. What are you going to do? But anyway, Owen Hart and Davey Boy Smith defeat, uh, go to a double countout with Vader and Mankind. The first time I watched this match, preparing for this show, I hadn't seen it in like 20 years. I was like, you know, this isn't very good. There's a lot of talent out here, and we're not getting much of a match. And then I watch it a second time. And I liked it a lot better. Maybe I just had too much uh, inflated hopes coming in. I was a big British Bulldog and Owen Hart fan. They were my favorite tag team in wrestling at that time, despite the fact not really having any real challengers for the belts. But I was a big fan of Owen Hart and the British Bulldog looked fantastic. And the fans were really during that time. If you remember, they were trying to turn bulldog into a quasi baby face like he was technically a heel but he was high-fiving the fans and they were cheering for him and i was a big bulldog and owen fan vader at this time dude how the mighty have fallen like he should have been wwf champion in 96 they should have pushed him as a monster heel but for whatever reason if it's his fault or vince's fault or whatever it just didn't i know he had some injuries in 96 when he came in and that probably didn't help matters, but he should have been higher on the card than mid-level, like mid-card tag team title situation. Mick Foley, always a great talent. No offense against him. Like he he's a Hall of Famer, but I just thought Vader should have meant more in the WWF, and it was kind of a flop. It was supposedly he turned the wrong people off. And you know, Vince likes a, a bodybuilder type. Vader was a big guy, but no one, I mean, he had, a, he had a lot of extra weight on him. Let's face it. And that worked against him in a place like the WWF. I was rooting for Vader to succeed all the time, but then I went to a wrestling show. I think it was in Fresno and I was like at the hotel. Uh, we were getting a hotel room for the night and I saw a fan, a seven-year-old kid go up to Vader and ask for his autograph. And Vader went, Grah! Get the hell away from me. And my fandom. Wow. I was just like, this guy can go away. <laughs> Cause you know, wrestling is, it should be like, he should be portrayed as a heel and stuff, but dude, a seven-year-old kid, like asking for your autograph. Come on, dude. Like he doesn't know any better. Like from that point on, when he started feuding with Kane and stuff, I was hoping Kane would literally beat him every time I saw him. This is not the first Vader is an asshole or was an asshole story I've ever heard. I'm going to be honest. I mean, there was a time in 93, 94 where the, the jobbers for WCW, if they saw that they were up against Vader, they went home. And Vader broke the back of a guy named Joe Thurman. And Vader's all crying about it on TV. I'm sorry. And then, then he goes out and he's every bit as sloppy as he's ever been during squash matches. And I'm sorry. I mean, you got to. You have to protect your opponent out there. And even when Vader was given, you know, hey, dude, you just broke someone's back. 
he he kept doing the same stuff. So I lost a lot of respect for him over that. Dude, Harley Race was his manager and he rode with him sometimes. I think Harley should have had a come to Jesus meeting with him and said, Hey dude, you're you're not you're not doing so well. You need to you need to get a grip. That yeah. whole Vader uh yelling at the kid thing just turned me off of him. And I was like, I don't care if I ever see this guy wrestle ever again. Yeah, you want to be a heel in real life and that was probably the 1970s mentality of it. But, dude, the kid doesn't know any better. He probably ruined that kid's week or maybe even month. You know what? I, I Some people won't like this. I get it when someone doesn't want to sign an autograph, even to a seven-year-old kid, because you'll find yourself doing it all day if you, if you, you allow it. But there's a way to do it, okay? You just say, not now, or, you know, sorry, I, I, sorry, I don't have time, whatever, and that's it. You know, you don't make a friggin scene out of it anyway one thing i noticed during this match they are pushing very hard for you to call a 900 number which kind of makes me laugh because those are so like gone and they've been so gone for so long and it's like i they're like oh yeah uh sunny and brian pillman are on the hotline talking to Shawn michaels i can only imagine what that's like how do you stop watching a live WrestleMania to listen to this conversation? I don't understand. Well, if I called the 900 number, uh, I'd probably get a spanking from my dad. So that wasn't happening. <laughs> um, so I don't know, man. I thought that was the wrong place at the wrong time. This actually was a pretty good match. Like now that I go back and look at it, the Bulldog did some really good stuff. Bulldog did some good stuff in 97. You know what I mean? Yes, he did. And, uh, you know, Owen Hart's Owen Hart. Like, he's a legend. You know, I, I didn't like the finish of this match. I thought it was kind of lame. They went to, what, a, a double disqualification or something. I think there yep. should have been a clear winner considering the circumstances. It was just like, it was just let the air out of the sails of the whole match. Like, there should have been a definite winner. And for whatever reason, whoever's genius came up with that was like, no, let's go to a double disqualification. Now, Brian Pillman hosting the 900 number, I also thought that was a complete waste of his talent. Like, they signed this guy to a huge deal back a year later, and the dude's hosting a 900 number. Like, if you're Vincent Mann, you're just like, my God, I paid this much money for this dude. My God. Well, he had gotten into that car accident, which was really, really bad, and they tried to put him in the ring prematurely, and it just didn't work because he wasn't ready for it physically so basically he's doing what he can do he's going to be back on raw i think like two or three weeks later he attacked austin yeah dude i watched some of brian pillman from 97 and i love brian pillman but man he was hard to watch in 97 due to that accident like he shouldn't have been in the ring no i mean that accident was i mean it, it was really bad it destroyed his ankle and just uh Sad ending to Pillman. I really liked him both in and out of the ring. Pillman was something else. All right. Now we go to what I say is the main event, Bret Hart versus Steve Austin. The Monday before on Raw, we had Bret Hart versus Sid in the cage. Uh, Sid is defending the WWF championship. I am thinking, not knowing any better, that, okay, Bret's going to win the title and defend it against Austin at WrestleMania because that's the match everyone wants to see. And Austin comes out and interferes on Brett's behalf, trying to get the title on Brett so he can win it at WrestleMania, which I think is very smart booking. 
And The Undertaker comes out and slams Brett. Brett is about to leave the cage and win the title. And Undertaker slams the cage onto Brett and Sid wins. And Brett goes on a profanity-laced tirade on live television, which had everyone shocked. The next day, um, I'm at the AOL grandstand. There's that AOL thing again. And everyone's like, you know, hey, was that real? And I'm like, well, no, of course it wasn't. It was scripted. but Half the people in that room, Brett convinced them that he had a meltdown on national television. And you know what? If you didn't know any better, it looked like a meltdown on national television. It was just an unbelievably exciting Raw. And the WWF is turning the corner, Jake. Brett Hart, like that was all you could do with him at this point, I think, was turn him heel. He had come in in 96 under that 20-year contract, right? And then uh-huh. he comes in and he starts whining and complaining. Like, and I'm a Bret Hart fan. I'm a Bret, like I told you, I'm a Bret Hart loyalist. But this is all you can do with him. The fans, American fans, kind of got sick of him. He was always complaining, like, over everything. And fans don't like that. They want someone to, like, fess up to their mistakes, admit what they did wrong, and just move on. Like, Austin was kind of that way. Like, he was, yeah, I'll take my butt whooping, but, you know, I was the one ultimately that lost the match. Bret Hart was like, I got screwed by Shawn Michaels and Undertaker and all this stuff. And fans just got sick of it. Like he was, it was prime territory for Bret to turn heel. And you could see the seeds were being planted, especially towards the end of this match with Austin. Like the fans were turning against Bret and he was doing a lot of heelish stuff. And especially after he won the match, like he was kicking Austin when he was basically knocked out. Shamrock had to give him some belly to back suplexes. It was like, dude, I, I had to watch raw the next night to see what happened. And as we know, uh, we, we know what happened with Brett turning against America, you know, coming into this match. And this is why, you know, don't always listen to 1997, John McAdam. I was like, there's no way they can turn Brett. They can't, cannot turn brett he is a, a a hero in canada they can't turn him i figured that he would win the championship in some sort of a you know not a non-controversial fashion but they would make austin look really strong the two of them would shake hands after the match and you know we'd have two top baby faces and no what i i i was shocked when Brett, you know, I mean, you do what you have to do to win a no disqualification uh, submission match, okay? I mean, there there are no rules. Don't play by them. But as you mentioned, when Brett continued to pummel Steve Austin after the match, an unconscious and helpless Steve Austin, you could make the argument that Austin deserved it. You can make the argument that that Brett said coming in he was going to do it, but it's heelish anyway. The fans in Chicago were cheering for Brett most of the match, but you're right. At that moment, that's when he turned, and that's when they started booing him. Dude, Austin, whether he wanted to or not, became a sympathetic babyface. And Brett, I I think Brett came up with this story of how this match, or Pat Patterson, because it was so well-written. I had never seen anything like that. They call it the double turn. I guess... I did back in the day with Honky Tonk Man and Jake Roberts, but that was nothing compared to uh, to uh, Bret Hart and Steve Austin. Bret Hart played 
the turning heel perfectly. I, I know he was a heel with the Hart Foundation in the mid 80s, but I never thought Brett could ever turn heel again. And he proved me wrong. He was one of the best heels I'd ever seen. That anti-American gimmick that he did, I don't even know if it was much of a gimmick. I think Brett kind of feels that way because he was so passionate about it. But it was it was literally one of the best anti-American angles ever done. Like most of them, like Nikolai Volkov and Iron Sheik. I mean, those were cartoony. Um, you know what I mean? And Brett's was grained in truth. And it was kind of like very well done. Would you agree? I think it was spectacularly well done. If you had told me coming into that match that, okay, they're going to turn Brett, but he's still going to be a baby face in Canada and other countries. I would have been like, that is never, ever going to work. And it worked. It worked perfectly. As you could tell by, um, I think it was the Calgary stampede pay-per-view where the Calgary fans were totally 100% in Brett's corner and they were booing Austin shamrock, et cetera. I know wrestling was a work at this point and it was predetermined, but when Brett turned heel the next night on raw, I feel like I got as a Bret Hart fan for 10 years, I felt like I got a, a knife in my back. Like I was just shocked. I was like, so Bret Hart doesn't like me anymore. Like, is that what it is? Am I an asshole? Like, you know what I mean? I was <laughs> 10 years old. Like I, I was, I was a polite young man. Like, he was saying all Americans are horrible people that we shoot each other and all, we don't take care of our sick and elderly. I'm like, no, Brett, that's not, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a conflict. Like, should I still root for this guy? Because he's kind of bashing me and he's kind of putting the boots to me, you know, but you know, it was well done. The, the, kudos to Brett Hart and everybody involved. I mean, it was all rooted in reality because you're right. You know, we uh, you can make the argument we don't take care of our sick and elderly. We do cheer on criminals. We, you know, people applauded O.J. Simpson when he was, you know, declared not guilty and people celebrated. It was obvious he did it. And it was all based on reality. And I've always said this, the best heels, the best guys who go from baby face to heels are always the guys who have a point. Like he has an argument that, yes, he has been screwed over and over again, that he should be WWF champion, that he won the Royal Rumble, but they turned a blind eye after he won it. And they, Steve Austin cheated him out of it. He did get cheated uh, out of the WWF championship on the previous Raw. You know, there, there were a few other things, but he had a point and usually the best heels have a point, but. They're more wrong than right. And that's exactly what Brett was. Dude, it, it made me believe as a wrestling fan again, because I was kind of like, oh, this stuff's kind of corny sometimes. And then I saw that interview he did where he told the American fans to kiss his ass and stuff. And he didn't respect us anymore. And I was like, oh, Brett, not you too, man. Like, no, you know, it was it was. Yeah, it was uh, disheartening. No pun intended, but. Yeah, it was well done, and it was one of the greatest things up to that point WWF ever did. It, was, it might be in the top ten of the greatest angles they've ever done, like, in terms of creativity. I don't know how much money it made at the box office, but uh, it was one that hooked me in hook, line, and sinker, and I wanted Bret Hart to get his butt kicked, even though secretly I was still rooting for him. Well, let, let, let's talk about, I mean, let's talk about this match first. Um, coming out of it, okay, I was like, that 
is the best match in WWF history. There was no match better than that match. And I'm going to go a step further now that it's 25 years later and we know what the aftermath of this match is. Like the WWF turned a corner and was soon going to be beating WCW again. And they would be the ones, well, WCW kind of drove themselves out of business, but that's another show. Um, I mean, for historical significance, this match meant everything. If you had this match in a vacuum, if you had it take place at a an armory with 250 people in it, it's a five-star match. That's how good the match was. But in terms of historical significance, it's the match that turned WWF around. It turned Steve Austin into a sympathetic babyface. It turned Bret Hart into an effective heel for him. And the WWF had a great storyline from now until Bret left. Well, we'll call it left at the after the Survivor Series. Yeah, it was a fantastic match. I dare say this is better than Savage Steamboat at WrestleMania 3. Like, it just told an amazing story. And it got Bret Hart freshened up because I think at that time, Bret had gotten a little stale with the babyface thing. And it made Austin just a mega star. Those images of him with his face just bloodied are just etched in my mind. Like, and they always will be like, those are iconic moments. You know what I mean? And unfortunately at the time it wasn't as the WWF wasn't as popular. It had been in the eighties, but I would like put that up there with Hogan and Andre as a defining moment in the history of the company. Yeah, and that's why I'm going to come right out and I'll I'll say it. I mean, it was match of the decade. It was probably match of the century, and it's probably match of all time. Were there better matches in ring than Bret Hart and Steve Austin? Yeah, there were. But as far as the match that changed things, that, I mean, Steve Austin, like you said, it, it put him on the road to being on the cover of TV Guide. I'm being on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. I'm being, you know, every he literally was a household name because you had to ask, what's this Austin 316 t-shirt that I've seen 20 times today all about? And, you know, like I said, that's why to me it is the greatest match of all time. They say Vince McMahon, you know, made Steve Austin. That's very true. Well, I will say that there are three people responsible for Steve Austin becoming a megastar. Number one, Steve Austin, because, you know, he had the talent and the ability to do it. Number two, Bret Hart. He saw something in Steve Austin, and he was smart enough to know what to do to get him over. And number three was Vince McMahon. I mean, without those three, it just doesn't work. I agree with you. And I am someone who saw Steve Austin when he was in world class in 1989 and 1990. And I was like, you know, this guy has talent. He could be huge. And I'm embarrassed to say that after he was in WCW, like 93, 94, I was like, ah, I was wrong about that guy. It's, and I know better. It's like, look, you know, if they don't push him, if they don't give him anything, how is he going to show his talent? And then he was in ECW briefly in 1995. And I was like, and that's when I felt like really stupid. I'm like, this guy does have all the talent in the world. They just made sure that the wrong guy didn't get over in WCW. That's how, especially in WCW, it goes. Yeah, well, they just had a different idea of what kind of superstar they wanted to push. 
You know what I mean? Steve Austin, they brought Hogan in and they thought Hulk Hogan was the cat's pajamas. But in reality, Hulk Hogan had seen his best days behind him. And they didn't like think of a guy like Steve Austin or a Brian Pillman or anybody like that. So, you know, I mean, it's just, it it all happened for a reason. He went to the WWF. His first couple months there were a lot to be desired. They made him the ringmaster and all that stuff. That was horrible. But, you know, after a while, it just happened. Like, sometimes that just happens in wrestling with the Jake Roberts King of the Ring thing. And with Bret Hart, man, the stars aligned and Steve Austin deserved everything he got. Totally. I mean, I had people asking me in like 93, 94, you know, hey, the, the Hollywood Blondes, Brian Pillman and Steve Austin, they were so good together. Why did they split them up? And I was like, oh, because they got over. <laughs> they didn't want the wrong guys getting over. And they, you know, that's why they split them up and they put Brian Pillman in an angle where uh, Sherry Martell was chasing him around. It made no sense. And well, no kidding. The air went out of both Brian Pillman and uh, Steve Austin's balloons. But I mean, anyway, I can't say enough about this match. I can't say enough about how great it was uh, with Ken Shamrock saying, you know, Steve, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And then like ringing the bell. And I mean, I thought what I was going to see next was Bret Hart just, you know, let go of the sharpshooter, uh, let Steve recuperate, and then shake his hand, and that would have been the thing to turn Steve Austin babyface. But no, their idea was way better than mine, and they made a whole lot of money off of it. Why Bret Hart was never a booker in a wrestling promotion, I'll never know. Uh, This dude had just some of the greatest ideas in the history of the sport, and it's unfortunate what happened in Montreal, but things happen, I guess. Yeah, like I said, that that's a whole nother, maybe even a series of shows, which I probably won't do because, I mean, what else can be said about what happened in Montreal 24 and a half years ago other than I should have gone? But anyway, next up, we have the LOD and Ahmed Johnson against the Nation of Domination. Um, I will give the LOD credit. Coming into this, they really felt like a couple of relics from the 1980s. I mean, the whole road warrior thing with the face paint and all that was quite passe by 1997 but coming out they got a really loud lod lod chant yeah i know it's chicago but still i mean good on them they were at least that much over in 1997 dude i when they came back to the wwf i was very excited because i'd always been a fan of the road warriors uh going back to their days in the awa i had those old rimco action figures that they had nice I love the Road Warriors, and they never got old with me. I was a huge Road Warriors fan. Ahmed Johnson, like, he was a guy that I thought the WWF could strap a rocket to. I know now we know that he was hurting people, that he had, what, kidney issues or something? You know, I don't know. But the dude, like, when he came in, like, he was exciting to watch. If you're not a smart fan and you just like watching wrestling, like, as a naive fan... Like Ahmed Johnson's a guy that you want to get behind and they strapped the rocket to him. They gave him the intercontinental tile. And for whatever reason, he just couldn't keep that push going. No, uh, I think he, from what I heard back then, I mean, he just rubbed some people the wrong way. Uh, They felt he had an attitude problem, whatever that means, but they had high hopes for him for a while. I mean, and it's funny, you know, someone obviously went watched Pulp Fiction and like, okay, we're going to put, Marcellus Wallace in, in a wrestling ring. That, you know, like I said, they had high hopes for him and it never really happened. This match was the ultimate 
Yeah, that match was okay match. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It was just there. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, <laughs> Ron Simmons uh, getting hit with trash cans and all that stuff and Crush. Man, Crush had really fallen off, dude. This was a guy who had came into the promotion like four years before as Kona Crush and got a push. They turned him heel against Randy Savage. And then he's just like a member of the nation domination. He's just like kind of like Barry Windham in this point. He's just there. Ron Simmons, I was always a fan of Ron Simmons going back to WCW. Um, I don't know what to think of the Farouk gimmick. At least he got a push with it. You know, PG-13 were involved. They kept getting involved in the match. It was kind of a cluster, but a fun cluster. Yeah, it was It was kind of an ECW match, except, you know, not really. I don't know. Like I said, it was. it was okay. There was nothing wrong with it. But speaking of something being wrong with it, the main event. Last week, we talked about WrestleMania 8. And was Hulk Hogan versus Sid at WrestleMania 8 the worst WrestleMania main event of all time? I'll mention again that someone said to me, well, Hogan and Andre was terrible, but it was Hogan and Andre. You know, you've at least got that that rub, you know, that that once in a lifetime thing. Now you've got Sid, who is not quite Andre, to say the least, having a bad match with Hulk Hogan. Now we don't even have Hulk Hogan. It's Sid versus The Undertaker. And, I mean, they have to figure something out. I mean, it was completely terrible. It was, and it was endless, too. I mean, you've got to figure, okay, look, Sid has his strengths, right? He's a big guy. He's got a great look. He can't work. Figure out spots for him to do, make the match short, etc. They did none of that. This match was an absolute yawner and a, a, a contender for worst WrestleMania match of all time. I watched this show twice. I couldn't get past the second viewing of this match. It was it was that bad. Undertaker, I've always been a fan of Undertaker. I respect his contributions to the wrestling business. And I think he seems like a really good guy, like after hearing him on podcasts and stuff like that. But dude, like he's a guy who can have a good match with a good worker, but a Bad match with a really bad... He can't carry anybody, I don't think. Like, if you look back, like, he's had great matches with Triple H, Shawn Michaels, uh, Bret Hart, like, you name it. But when it comes to, like, other guys, like Giant Gonzalez and Great Khali and guys like that, uh, he just, he can't do it, you know? And that was one of these examples. Like, it just, it was hard to watch, man. Like the, even the ending, like some people liked the ending of this match with Bret Hart coming out and all that crap. Dude, this match was a car wreck of a match. It was boring and it should have been five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you summed it up. I mean, it was it just dragged on and on. I mean, and like you said, Bret Hart can get a good match out of The Undertaker. He can get a really good match out of The Undertaker. You know, so could Shawn Michaels. But. Yeah, it's really hard to get a good match out of Sid. You can't ask Undertaker to do it. I mean, you know, the guy played basketball in college, so you know Undertaker is at least an athlete. But like I said, you have to figure out, okay, what can these guys do? What can't they do? Let's stick to the things that they can do, and they didn't do it. You know, I, I'm probably in the minority, but I was a fan of Sid at one time. Like I told you, when he beat Shawn Michaels for the title, I like said, praise the Lord, because I was done with Shawn Michaels and Sid. I thought 
had the intensity and sometimes the promo work like that reeled me in. But you're right. He, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't Carl Gotch or, you know, Ric Flair out there. You know, he was Sid. He could do what he could do. And it was pretty much a bad Raw match, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. I love Sid, but, you know, it just you're right, dude. He just he, he was what he was. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not one of those people who say, you know, oh, they're, you know, he can't work, so there's no room for him. Of course there is. He he has his strengths, but wrestling a 20-minute match against The Undertaker is not one of them. All right, I know we're running a little bit long here. I know I said, give me 60 minutes, I'll give you this. I'm You're already giving me like 90 minutes. But we have some questions from our Facebook group. I'd like to ask answer a couple, and one of them is really interesting. Now, let me, before I ask this question, let me ask you this, uh, Jake. In your opinion, what did you think of this WrestleMania overall? Like, thumbs up, uh, thumbs down? Oh, it was thumbs down. It was a one-match show. You know, it was basically a extravagant, a fantastic match, a five-star match with a bunch of uh, uh, raw matches on it. Like, it, 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 it's, it's definitely in my uh, bottom of the best WrestleManias of all time. It, it ranks up there with the uh, WrestleMania 11, WrestleMania 11, right? From uh, Hartford when Brett and Backlund had that match and stuff. That was pretty bad. That uh, was Wrestle- really bad. WrestleMania uh, four and five at Trump wasn't that great either, but this one was, uh, yeah, it was a chore. All right. Well, I gave it a thumbs up overall, but I, I felt the same way you did. I liked the Bret Hart versus Steve Austin match and storyline so much that it overcame all the rest of the bad stuff. And I gave it a thumbs up just for that. And the tag match with Vader and Mankind was pretty good as well. But Jesus Salas Rodriguez asked, taking out the Austin versus Hart classic, how good was this WrestleMania on a one to 10? Uh, It was a two. I would give it a two. I mean, and that's, you know, like I said, that's one better than nothing could be worse because there were, like I said, that it had the tag match, but that main event was absolutely horrible. And the opening couple of matches didn't do anything for me. I mean, it was, you take out that main event and you don't have much left at all. Dude, it was because Vince was depleted of talent at the time. He was grasping at straws. I, I don't like to bash wrestlers because they work really hard. Every wrestler on the card. I don't want to be one of those guys like that. That guy sucks and stuff. But dude, he just didn't have it at that time. Like he dude, it was it was hard. I have a friend who over 30 years ago worked a show. It was, you know, it was, it was just a, an independent show, but he got to work with one of his friends on it. And it's like, you know what? All I mean, and no offense to him if he's listening. But he made Junkyard Dog look like Ric Flair. So if you, you know, like I said, if if you, at least Sid or whoever we're talking about, like at least they've been trained, at least they know what they're doing, at least they know how to bounce off the ropes and whatever. Like these guys couldn't do anything that you're supposed to do. Sonny Martinez asks if Shawn Michaels didn't lose his smile and it's Michaels and Hart again. What do you do with Stone Cold? My answer is that you're doing Bret Hart versus uh, Steve Austin, regardless of whether Shawn Michaels is on the show. Yeah, you would think so. I just didn't want to see Shawn Michaels, period. So that would have been fine. But I think if they would have booked uh, Shawn and Bret, I mean, Shawn and Bret for the title, they should have done 
a falls count anywhere match with Pillman and Austin because there was still, even though Pillman was hurt and he wasn't the wrestler he once was, you could have done like a street fight or something with Austin and Pillman. There was still a lot of meat on that bone, especially the year before when Pillman pulled the gun on Austin and Austin broke his ankle and all that stuff on TV, on superstars. Like, I think like that was the way to go. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Um, I, I don't think Pillman was ready to go to, to be honest with you, Pillman and he unfortunately passed away later in this year. He just was, you know, the rest of his life, he was never ready to go again. Um, hey, here's a good question from Pete Pingle. Who do you think had the bit brightest future at the time, Rocky Maivia or Hunter Hearst Helmsley? And who do you think the company had more faith in? What do you think, Jake? I think they had more faith in Rocky. I think they already looked at Triple H as a solid mid-card intercontinental champion at the time, even though he wasn't the IC champion. I think Triple H at the time, definitely. But like six months later, when Rock turned heel and started doing some really funny stuff with Austin, where Austin threw the intercontinental title in the river and stuff like that. At that time, I thought, yeah, The Rock has more upside. But at the time, Hunter Hearst Helmsley probably did. I personally would give... Rocky Maivia a little bit uh, place him slightly above Hunter Hearst Helmsley only because a he is Rocky Johnson's son and b the guy was athletic enough to play football at the University of Miami back when Miami was a really big deal so you know and he was a good looking guy and just you know what find the right push for him and they eventually did all right let's do one more because I feel bad when I don't answer questions when people put them up and they get blown off and sorry if yours kind of got uh, missed, but uh, clearly we were running late here. Uh, David Ferguson asked, outside of Austin Hart, what was the best match? I enjoyed the tag title one. What are your thoughts, Jake? Uh, I agree with you 100%. I didn't like the finish of it. I thought there should have been tag team champions retained or crowned. Like, I think Vader and Mankind would have made a pretty good tag team champions, you know. But, dude, that was... The wrong. I never was a fan of draws and I never was a fan of double disqualifications because the fans are just like screwed in the end. They're like, okay, like we got behind this match and then that happens, you know, it's like a fart in church pretty much. So other than the, <laughs> the finish of the match, like I thought that the match was pretty good. I thought Bulldog looked really good. Owen looked good at times. Vader did too. And so did uh, Mankind when he was in there. But uh, like British Bulldog looked pretty good in that match. Yeah, he did. Owen did, too. Like, Owen really caught my eye the second time around. Uh, one last one. Christian Body asks, is this the worst one of all time not named WrestleMania 10? Jake, what do you think was the worst WrestleMania of all time? Oh, my God. We could do a whole show on that one. Uh, <laughs> dude, I remember watching WrestleMania 9 and 11, and I think those are contenders for the worst. Like, the fan, and I think it has to do, WrestleMania 9, has to do with the fact that the fans weren't into the matches per se. And a lot of the matches were mismatched. Like they had freaking Bob Backlund against Razor Ramon. Like that was a horrible match. And Razor Ramon was one of my favorites in the early 90s. Scott Hall had a lot of talent. And Bob Backlund should have probably not been in the WWF at that time. Like his best days had probably passed him by. And that was just not a good match. Hogan. Like they did that stupid thing where Mr. Fuji had Hogan come in the ring and face Yokozuna. There was no contract signed or anything. If Jack Tunney was there, he probably know that finish. It just didn't make any sense. And then 
WrestleMania 11, uh, my God, that was terrible. Like, that's when WWF was really moldy in terms of quality. Like, not to rag on Bob Backlund, like, he had some good moments in the 70s and 80s and all, but, man, that match, he, he, he couldn't get a good match with Bret Hart. Like, seriously. I just kept seeing Roddy Piper, like, putting the mic to Backlund, so going, what do you say? You know, in Roddy Piper's voice. <laughs> And that was the highlight of the matches, dude. Like, I don't remember really, like, I, I remember Diesel and Shawn Michaels having a somewhat good match. But other than that, that was a really forgettable. So this one, 9-11, and also the WrestleManias at Trump Towers weren't that great either. Well, I can tell you they had Bob Backlund back because they were struggling with, with PR issues coming out of everything that happened in 1992. So they brought in, you know, Bob in real life was very straight laced and dependable. And that's why they brought him in. And I thought at the end of the end of the day, it was a mistake. A lot of people like that Bret Hart versus uh, Bob Backlund match you were talking about. I thought the whole, both Backlund versus Hart pay-per-view matches were absolute trash. And if you disagree with me, fine. But that's what I think. They were absolute trash. In my opinion, the war, I, I didn't think this one was that bad. Obviously, um, I gave it a slight thumbs up. Christian didn't like WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10 had two phenomenal matches on it with uh, Owen Hart versus Bret Hart and then the ladder match. So I can't make that one the worst. In my opinion, the worst WrestleMania ever was WrestleMania 4. It was the matches themselves were boring, were so boring, but the tournament, I mean, there were were no surprises outside of Greg Valentine beating Ricky Steamboat. I mean, anyone could have told you that that was going to be Ted DiBiase and Randy Savage at the end. And while, okay, that's what you should have done. They were different paths to get there. And like, to me, I mean, wow, it was 33 years ago, but it felt 34 years ago, but it felt endless. But Thank you, everyone. Obviously, we've got additional content this week. Um, Jake, you were a really good guest. I had a lot of fun. We're going to have you back. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun going back in the yesteryear and talking about the uh, days before the WWF hit Paydirt again, because at this time, man, I mean, other than the main event stuff, like we were talking about, like it was a chore to watch WWF from like 1992 to 1990, early 97. Like, I just thought, man, like, Vince got to do something here because this, this ain't getting good. What they did was, I mean, they just started hot shotting every single show like crazy and it worked. And WCW, you know, at this point, the WWF was in some financial trouble. Like you were right. Vince, you know, he had his money, but his company was losing money at, at, at a scaling rate. And there was talk that Vince was going to bring in, like you said, an outside investor or maybe sell Titan Towers and that none of that happened and he managed to bounce back. But anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening. It's been a fun episode. I want to thank uh, Brian Last for letting us do this. I want to thank Luke Hippelman for all of the great work he does making this show sound decent. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. Thank you.